Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. Because of the topic for this morning, because of some of the readings, I need to tell those of you who don't know, those of you who are new, that this church believes that nobody goes to hell. That is the universalist part of Unitarian Universalism. So even though you will hear the word today, please know that no one in this room believes it, as far as I know. We also come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, please let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. You've heard the disclaimer about our readings and words. Here's the first one. These are the words of Johnny Cash from the song, The Man Comes Around. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. Sometimes people are curious about this worship service and how we can have a service when we have people here with roots and practices in all major world religions, in secular humanism, staunch atheism, in neo-paganism as well, and What holds us together? What's at the center? One of the things at the center for this community is our mission. And we wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. And more words from Johnny Cash. Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers. One hundred million angels singing. Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum. Voices calling, voices crying. Some are born and some are dying. It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come. And the whirlwind is in the thorn tree. In measured hundredweight and penny pound. When the man comes around. Now's the time in our service when we get quiet, when we breathe deeply together into that place inside where the stillness rests. It is in this place when we can sink our roots down into what we know to be true.
when we can feel the fear all around us and the anxiety and be a still point in the middle of all of the turbulence. Let us enter the wise silence together, understanding that small child noises and the noises of life count as part of the silence in this congregation. So today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, and I'm going to remind you what happened in this story in the Christian tradition. There are two interpretations of this story, and they have become, over the centuries, two different ways of seeing the world, and right now in our country, they matter, and I'll tell you why. So... The story is of the Sunday before Easter, which was the Sunday before Passover in that year. And it is the beginning of what they call Passion Week in the Christian tradition. It's the beginning of the story of the end of Jesus' life leading up to the crucifixion and then the resurrection on Easter. So the story is Jesus was in trouble with the authorities, and if we stayed out of Jerusalem, the trouble might have blown over. But he did not stay out of Jerusalem. He came with his disciples into the city, and the way he chose to come into the city was on the back of a donkey. His disciples had put their cloaks on the back of the donkey, and he came into town riding slowly on this donkey. And people, large crowds, had gathered for the Passover celebration. And people started putting their cloaks on the ground in front of his donkey and waving palm branches at him and singing Hosanna, praising him, and putting palm branches on the road in front of him. So the interpretation is that uh, the people thought he was a king come to um, overthrow the Roman occupation because there was a prophecy that maybe the people knew about in the scroll of the prophet Zechariah in what we call the ninth chapter that says, Behold, Jerusalem, your king will come riding to you into Jerusalem on a donkey. So they were like, ooh, this is our king. And um, so they praised him. Maybe. Or maybe they saw him as coming in on the back of a donkey, which is an animal of peace and farming, instead of on the back of a horse, which is a king's regular mount. And they waved palm fronds at him and put palm branches on the ground because the palm is also the symbol of a funeral. And so maybe they knew that he was going to his death. Um, And this is called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you would think that that would give you a clue about whether this was right on King Jesus coming in or the Prince of Peace coming to sacrifice in love and die. But the word triumph, the whole concept of triumph in the Christian faith is paradoxical enough, so it could be either one. You can triumph by self-sacrifice, or you can triumph just by conquering. And there's enough evidence in the Christian and Hebrew scriptures for both. Either he's the sacrificial lamb, or he's the coming king. And so as we look at the broad spectrum of Christian beliefs, 
we can see that there are people who embrace both of those. Some people um, really grasp that the one who would triumph is the one who gives their life away in service to others and sacrifices out of love. But most people don't really enjoy grasping that. They want to have a ride on King Jesus. They want to have a Jesus who will come and decide who to free and who to blame and who will come around taking names and who will give people terror in each sip and in each sup. And he will tell everybody who's done wrong. And he will say to certain people, shut up. And he will say to other people, you were doing it right the whole time. And so um, most of us adore this idea of, of, of a final judgment when everyone will get what's coming to them according to our own interpretation of the rules. Um, why should you care about the difference between servant Prince of Peace Jesus and ride-on king taking names Jesus? Because it's important in our political election cycle almost every year, but this year in particular. I'm going to tell you what I have in common with Ted Cruz. Both he and I grew up with fathers who thought a lot about the end of days. I've told you before that sometimes when I was, uh, I remember one particular time when I was anxious about a math test in the eighth grade, um, my dad said to me, cheer up, Maggie, maybe Jesus will come back before your test and you won't really have to study. <laughs> this was not an outlier conversation. Really, even till today, he's 89 now, even till today, he loves talking about when Jesus is going to come back. And for him, it's a cheery thought, this um, rolling up of the heavens like a scroll, this uh, destruction of everything in fire. Uh, I never quite grasped that myself, but uh, for people who believe that Jesus will come and take all the believers into heaven... The instant that starts happening, it could be cheery, I guess, unless you have some people you love who are unbelievers, and then you'll be sad. But people seem to be able to compartmentalize that in their heads, and it doesn't bother them too badly. Um, I lived in Jerusalem for six months learning Hebrew before I went to seminary, so I was a senior in college. And a lot of Christians whose hobby it is to study the prophetic books live in Jerusalem because they think Jesus is going to come back there and they want to be there when it happens. And so if you hang around the Christians in Jerusalem, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk about the tribulation and what kind of torture you might be able to stand. And um, really, I was just like, all they would have to do is like describe to me what they're going to do and I would do whatever they wanted. <laughs> but... Um, there is such allegory in the scriptures. I'm going to read you just a little of it. The allegories look like this. This is from Daniel, the book of Daniel, seventh chapter. Daniel dreams of four great beasts from the sea. First was like a lion with eagle's wings. Then its wings were plucked off, and it stood like a man and was given the mind of a man. The second beast was like a bear, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. 
The third was like a leopard and four wings and a little bird on its back with four heads, and dominion was given to it. The fourth had iron teeth and devoured and stamped things to pieces. It had ten horns, and among them was a little horn. The Ancient of Days took his seat on a throne, and the books were opened. The Son of Man came, and the Ancient of Days gave him dominion and glory. Okay. So you have people who are intensely curious about what each of these allegorical elements relates to, because that's what an allegory is. Each thing relates to something in your world, and if you can figure out what each equates to, then you can figure out what the prophecy is saying. The problem with that is that these allegories were written thousands of years ago, and people continue to try to find things in their current life, like the bear was thought by many people in Jerusalem to be Russia. Now, why Daniel would have been writing about Russia is not a question that they asked. And, of course, the, um, the lion with eagle's wings was Babylon, which you could think, oh, that's in Iraq. Maybe they're writing about Iraq. I'm telling you, there are lots of people who think that. In the book of Revelation, there's, there are numbers, numbers, numbers listed and written about. There'll be seven of this and minus two of that. And anyway, there was a number 153 that everybody was excited about because at that time when I was in Jerusalem, that was the number of nations that were in the United Nations minus Israel. So, and they hate the UN, these people who don't like, who want to see the end of the world come. Um, They think the UN is one of the evil, world-unifying things that will bring on the end. Of course, they're ambivalent about it because they kind of want the end to come, but they understand that it's evil that brings it. Okay, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, when I was there, were Catholicism, communism, capitalism, and Islam. Even though their names are pestilence, famine, war, and death, right there in the scripture, but I guess that's not plain enough or political enough. Almost all interpreters think that these scriptures are talking about their own time. The Jews at the time of Jesus, um, around, around the time of his death, they thought the end of days was coming because the Romans in the year 70, uh, common era, had had destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews to the four corners of the world. So they felt like since they they were in diaspora now, this might be the end of times. The Christians thought they were at the end of the world because Jesus had apparently also thought that he was at the end of the world, even though he said nobody really knows, but this generation won't pass before it happens. So... A lot of people prophesy when the end is going to come. I know you see it in the news. Um, the, but none of the prophecies ever come true. It was supposed to happen in 1988. It was supposed to happen in the year 2000. And all the numbers in the book of Revelation, which just has, ends with an N, does, it's not Revelations, so now you can uh, sound smart. The book of Revelation has lots of numbers in it that people add up to all the different years that it's going to happen, but it never happens. 
So a lot of um, people spent a lot of their genius and energy trying to figure this out. The most poignant example to me is Sir Isaac Newton. He discovered gravity, and then he spent the rest of his life chewing on these images from Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Revelation. And the best the Bible commentators and historians have had to say about him is that as a theologian, he was a pretty good scientist. <laughs> Martin Luther in the 1500s thought that the, that the world was going to end in his time. He knew all of the signs and they were all there. Johnny Cash thought the world was ending any time. You can tell from his lyrics, they're all from uh, the parable of the virgins being ready for the bridegroom to come, which is another allegory. Are their wicks trimmed in their lamps so they'll be ready? There are smart virgins who were ready, and there are stupid virgins who were not ready, and they were asleep when the bridegroom came, and they weren't there to welcome him. That's the virgins trimming their wicks so they'll be ready for the end of time. Now, the thorn tree in the whirlwind is not from the book of Revelation, although it sounds like it's from the book of Revelation. It's from a dream Johnny Cash had where Queen Elizabeth told him, Johnny, you're a thorn tree in a whirlwind. And so we don't know whether John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos when he was writing this book of Revelation, whether he was chemically altered in any way. But we do know about Johnny Cash. <laughs> when this continent was discovered by Europeans, they called it the New World. And a bunch of them came over to try to build a really Christian nation. These were not Jesus, Prince of Peace people. These were right on King Jesus, make everybody a Christian people. And what it meant was that they pretty much destroyed the First Nations people who were already here and drove the rest of them into reservations so they could have their perfect Christian nation. And they've been bellyaching ever since because it's never been quite the new Israel that they wanted it to be. Because after the diaspora in 70 AD, there was no Israel anymore. Until 1948. When everybody was kind of worn out with calling America the new Israel. Because America wasn't really acting like a perfect Christian nation. And even the people who had written our main documents, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, didn't want it to be a Christian nation. So from dirt, the Puritans lost their battle to make this a Christian nation because the founders were Enlightenment guys who wanted it to be not a Christian nation. Not an unchristian nation, but they didn't want in any established religion. Raphael Cruz says that's nowhere in the Constitution which may be why his son started memorizing the Constitution at an early age. I don't know. If that's the way you rebel, more power to you. So with the establishment of Israel in 1948, suddenly Israel was back in play in terms of all the prophecies. People started getting really excited 
especially also since nuclear power was made into a bomb in 1945. So, all these prophecies that talked about the burning day, that talked about the heavens rolling up like a scroll, in Zechariah that talked about people's flesh melting off their faces and their tongues being consumed in their mouths, suddenly that started to make sense in terms of what a nuclear bomb could do. Suddenly, science had caught up with the prophecy. And people got really on the balls of their feet about it. Even the establishment of Israel was because of people who believed that Israel had to be established before the end times could come, before Jesus could come back. The people in the British government had been arguing for this, the people who are evangelical Christians, since 1839, Lord Anthony Copper, Earl of Shaftesbury, had been saying the Jews need to have their homeland before Jesus can come back. And he argued that there should be a British consulate in Jerusalem. And so, lo, they made a British consulate in Jerusalem in the mid-1800s, and the consul in that consulate was an evangelical Christian who was tasked with protecting the 10,000 or so Jews who were already there. And this is what made the momentum happen for the Jews to be given their own land, and this is why um, people who are evangelicals and candidates who are Christian evangelicals are extremely pro-Israel because the Bible says whoever's on the side of the Jews is beloved by God and that Israel has to be there in order for Jesus to come back, which is what they want. You see now, you see how this belief, which is kind of esoteric, starts tying into actual historical events here on this planet. Um, Another thing that happened is that you have people who come into power who are not that upset about the possibility of Armageddon. Armageddon is an actual place in the Middle East. And so when you have evangelical people in power, you have to wonder whether they are in dread of this or and or kind of looking forward to Armageddon. You don't know. But it's worth asking the question, and the newspaper reporters, most of them don't know to ask this question. But people are so tied in with Israel having its... When I lived over there, I used to attach myself to uh, English-speaking tour groups just so I could, um, you know, travel around the country. And the preachers of the Pentecostal tour groups would always say... Israel is the only country to have its history written in advance. Or they would say something coy like, well, on our return trip, if we need our return tickets, they were hoping it would happen while they were there. So um, you you have preachers who are talking about the nuclear power being the end of the world talking about the, earth, the world being ending in fire, because that's what the prophecy says. And people like uh, J. 
Jerry Falwell, say things like, the only way out is up. And people like Pat uh, Robertson saying, I guarantee you that by 1982, there will be a judgment on the world. He backed off of that a little when he ran for president, but then he was back to it. It doesn't bother me so much when preachers are like that, but here are some people in government who like that. Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, 1982, when asked about the end of time, replied, I have read the book of Revelation, and yes, I believe the world is going to end by an act of God, I hope, but every day I think that time is running out. Is that the guy you want as your Secretary of Defense? Reagan's Interior Secretary, who's in charge of our part of the planet, James Watt, when asked about preserving the environment for future generations, said, I do not know how many generations we can count on before the Lord returns. You think that affected policies? You bet. In the 1980s, President Reagan's interest in prophecy started to worry some people, most notably the Israeli ambassador at the time. He told uh, an Israeli guy, you know, I am turning back to your ancient prophets in the Old Testament and the signs foretelling Armageddon. And I find myself wondering if we're the generation that's going to see that come about. I don't know if you've noticed any of those prophecies lately, but believe me, they certainly describe the times we're going through. You want a president who thinks that he's living in the end times? George W. believed that as well. We're not sure about Rumsfeld, but we, might, we have some clues that in his Bible studies that he um, convened in the White House that they talked about these things. So, all right. So this isn't just an oddity. This isn't just a little offshoot of Christianity that has people talking about exactly what's going to happen in the end of times. So most people believe that things were going to get really bad And then Jesus would come back, either before or after seven years of tribulation. So you were either pre-trib or post-trib in your eschatology, which means what you believe about the end of times. But all of that has been pushed aside by this guy named uh, Rusas Rushduni, who was a philosopher and theologian who started teaching in the 50s and 60s. He didn't think that things had to get really bad Before Jesus came back, he thought and taught that what Christians had to do was to reconstruct a Christian nation and then reconstruct a Christian world, and then Jesus would come back. And by Christian world, he meant a world where the Jewish scriptures law was applied to believers and non-believers alike, i.e., death penalty for adultery, death penalty for homosexuality, death penalty for incorrigible children. There's a list that would make your skin crawl of how many things get the death penalty according to Leviticus law. And Rush Dooney was, at the time, a weird little fringe offshoot of Christianity, teaching that the Christians had to get dominion over the seven mountains of culture. And the seven mountains of culture, um, I wrote it down here somewhere, it's like uh, education, politics, media, religion, arts and entertainment, and something else I can't remember. 
So you're supposed to get dominion over all of these things. And after Christians have dominion and have established Old Testament law over everybody, then Jesus will come back. They're still going for the same thing, Jesus coming back. But this is the way they're doing it. And it's called dominion theology. And this is what Ted Cruz's father preaches. Dominion theology over the seven mountains. He's a disciple of this Rushduni guy. So it is no longer fringe. Now, Senator Cruz is, a, is an announced guest at this conference where the preacher starts screaming about how homosexuals need to be killed. So he stops screaming about that and says, now let me introduce my good friend Ted Cruz. And that's why Ted Cruz is seen at these rallies with these people who seem to us to be fringe people. But one of the things I want to say to you today, my dear friends, is that this is not fringe anymore. This is in the center of the halls of power. Most evangelicals used to say, oh, we're New Testament Christians. We don't think the Old Testament laws should apply. But these new dominion people do think that they are Jewish scripture and Christian scripture people. And they want to apply the laws to everyone. And mostly what the laws seem to say to them is that white Christian men of their um, thought process should be in charge of everything and everybody. I think <laughs> that I'm really uncomfortable about Donald Trump personally. I'm not telling you who to vote for at all. I'm just saying I am very uncomfortable with that man. I don't like what he says, and I don't like the company he keeps. But Ted Cruz, I know that man. I know that theology. I know those people. He's the one that makes me wish that the man would come around <laughs> deciding who to free and who to blame, taking names. And uh, I see the irony in this. I know that God is on my side in this matter. Now will you say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice? We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Sing with me. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes last time. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot Rest until it comes. Go in peace.
This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.